Podcastle 215 Giant Episode for July 3rd, 2012. Ours is the Prettiest by Nalo Hopkinson. Rated R for language, violence, some sex, and fried green bananas. Eat up, they're on us. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson and happy 4th of July. When you think of the 4th of July, what comes to your mind? Do you think back on the American Revolution or the Declaration of Independence? Perhaps you think of immigrants coming through Stanton Island and seeing the Statue of Liberty for the first time. Maybe your thoughts are of the popcorn and summer movies variety. Will Smith, Bill Pullman, and Jeff Goldblum teaming up to save the world from an alien invasion. Welcome to Earth. Maybe you think of barbecues, fireworks, alcohol, and parades. A time with family and friends. If you're not American, what do you think of? Well, what better way to celebrate the 4th of July than by bringing you an extra-long story of outsiders finally making it to a strange new land full of potential and magic. Podcastle's very proud to present Ours is the Prettiest by Nalo Hopkinson. Originally published in Welcome to Bordertown. And with today's story, we're doing something we've never done here before. Typically at Podcastle, we select a separate reader to read an author's work. We do this because voice is important to us here. It can be a challenge. We have a lot of reader volunteers matching a reader to a story. But in our opinion, a great reading of a great tale is an unbeatable storytelling experience. And so this week, we're going against tradition, and have asked Nalo Hopkinson to read her own story for us. Miss Hopkinson was born in Jamaica, has lived in Jamaica, Trinidad, and Guyana, and for the past 30 years in Canada. She's a recipient of the Warner Aspect First Novel Award, the Ontario Arts Council Foundation Award for Emerging Writers, the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, the Locus Award for Best New Writer, the World Fantasy Award, the Sunburst Award for Canadian Literature of the Fantastic, the Aurora Award, and the Galactic Spectrum Award. She's the author of four novels, the most recent being The New Moon's Arms and a short story collection, Skin People. You can find her online at nalohopkinson.com. So get on your costumes, Take another drink before the parade comes around the corner and enjoy the story. Ours is the Prettiest by Nalo Hopkinson. Damiana! Betty used her hands to part the veil of rag strips she'd strung from the cone-shaped hat she was wearing. The veil covered her face completely. I didn't know how she could see where she was going in that costume of hers. Juju in the air this morning, we she shouted over the brassy music from the camel-drawn omnibus. It had been repurposed as a moving platform for some of the musicians in the parade. I smiled. Juju weather for true, yes? Betty and I had only met four days ago, but she'd already learned the phrase Juju weather from me. She mangled my accent, though. I scanned up and down Ho Street as far as I could see, which wasn't very far, what with all the parade floats and banners and apparently all border towns spilled into the street to celebrate. 
Around us, people were dressed up like devils, like dragons, like whatever the rest they pleased. All of us were dancing, strutting, jamming, chipping, rolling, and perambulating down Ho Street, however we might, to the rhythms blaring from the various bands marching the parade route. The racket was tremendous. I couldn't see Gladstone anywhere near us. I blew out a sigh of relief. Beatty wanted nothing more than to find Gladstone, her new girlfriend, in all this commerce. But Gladstone was pissed at Beatty and was cruising to do some bruising. The camel bus had a black banner draped around it. The lettering on it was made to look like bones and read, We Dead Awaken. Through the windows we could see the musicians, all of them wearing funereal black suits, including top hats tricked out with black lace veils. Even the musicians were playing mass. It was a brass band, instruments shouting out the melody to a song I almost recognized. Today was Juve. The day-long free-for-all we were pleased to call a parade ushered in the week of Bacchanalia that was Border Town's more or less annual jamboree. Word had gone around town that this year's theme was Jazz Funeral. I was dressed as a Katrina from the Dia de los Muertos, a gorgeous femme skeleton in sultry widow's weeds, complete with a massive picture hat. I suppressed a sneeze. My sinuses were tingling. Juju breeze for true, blowing a witchy front of magic from the realm into border town. Juju weather always made things in border town especially interesting. My fellow human friends made mako on me when I said I could sense the pools and eddies of magic as they wafted through border town. Only Gladstone, half-blood as she was, had ever backed me up. And now her new girlfriend, Beatty, too. Or possibly her newly ex-girlfriend, Beatty. Beatty, who might be from the other side, or who might just be a young brown girl playing out her own personal power fantasy. Gladstone's life could get complicated, we? Gladstone could deal. It was Beatty I was concerned for, so young and so naive. Newbies to border town never believed they were as out of their depth as they really were. Beatty swung a turn around me. She was completely covered by multicolored strips of old clothing that Gladstone had helped her collect from the discard bins at Tatterstock, the trash and clothing place in Letterville. Her voice growled softly from her whirling Darvish center. Do you see Gladstone? It made my heart ache. Poor baby butch Beatty. In the few days I'd known her, I'd already learned that her gruff voice came out lowest when she was trying to play it cool. Come, I replied. Let me go further down the road. I'm sure we're going to buck up on Gladstone soon. Over my dead body. Glads was gunning for Beatty, certain that Beatty'd betrayed her. Striding to the beat, I set off down the road, weaving my way through the other mass players. Beatty followed me obediently, a little devil dustling sticking close to its mummy. When I ran into Gladstone last night, she'd been propped up at a table at the ferret, well into the snarly phase of a drunken bout with her favorite flavor of self-pity in a bottle. Mad River Water chased with Anisette. Gladstone sober was the best friend a person could hope to have. Gladstone on a binge was a snake-mean nightmare best avoided. I had a scar on my chin to keep me from ever forgetting that. I intended to make sure that this town and Gladstone, my dearest friend, wouldn't ride a rough shot over Beatty, shiny as a new copper penny with not the slightest hint of silver to her eyes or her hair. It was kind of funny the way the three of us had bucked up on each other four days ago. Screaming Lord Neville sashayed over to greet the customer who just stepped tentatively in through the doorway of the Cafe Cubana. Table for one, sweet thing? The sweet thing was a sturdy, burnished brown tomboy with that leonine Bob Marley face you find on a lot of Jamaicans. She gave him a shy nod. 
She was wearing fancy runners with the laces not exactly tied, a plain baggy t-shirt, and jeans two or three sizes too big. Her hands slipped into their back pockets. One of the newest styles to hit Bordertown since people had started flooding into it from the world last month, claiming that Bordertown had disappeared for 13 years. This way, sugar. He led the way, practically voguing as he went. He had reason to show off. He was a tall, light-skinned brother with the kind of figure that could carry off any look. Today he was decked out in a shimmering purple confection of a satin gown, an off-the-shoulder number with deep décolletage. I had to admire how he pulled that off. A nipped-in waist and a full, bouncing poodle skirt made even fuller by a froth of lavender and sage petticoats peeking out from under it. The girl slouched along behind him as he led her to a booth. She glanced at me, and more than glanced at Gladstone, who didn't notice. I was on the alert, though. Any rude gesture from that girl, any comment about Gladstone's halfling looks, and I'd be on her like a dirty shirt. Instead, she said, A good day to you both. She smiled at me, practically beamed at Gladstone. I nodded a greeting. She was almost to her table before Gladstone realized somebody had been talking to her and mumbled a hasty good morning. I leaned over and whispered to my friend, How you figure baby girl keeps her pants up? That barely earned me a smile. Gladstone had a fragile look to her this early Monday morning. The skin around her eyes seemed thin, the blue threadworm of veins there showing even through the rain-soaked earth brown of her skin. Outwardly, Gladstone looked anything but delicate. She was sporting the usual threads, black leather boots, loose faded jeans encasing her strong flared thighs, a worn red flannel shirt with the arms cut raggedly off to display broad shoulders, and biceps sculpted by her work as a navvy all topped off with a close-cropped nap of silver hair, thick as a silverback's pelt, and a usually shit-eaten grin that flashed a single gold tooth. Her eyes were also silver from the truby side of her family, and they only strengthened her overall studly glamour. Many a femme and the occasional butch went all weak-kneed and tongue-tied in Gladstone's presence. Me and Gladstone had had a thing once. That was long over. Too many years between us, two different worlds of experience. Now our thing was that kind of staunch, comfortable friendship where neither one of us had to mince words. No, me and Gladstone's story done is Beatty's story I'm telling you now. I swung aside the skeletal bustle that was the skirt of my gown just in time to get it out from underfoot of a stagger line of trubies, every one of them dressed to pussfoot in gleaming white canvas bell-bottoms, sailor shirts and beanies. All that silver hair only made the white suit seem even whiter in the juve morning sunshine. The line of them careened toward me in time to the road march tune. What was that chorus? It was nagging at me, half remembered. The prettiest, the prettiest. A twenty-foot-tall stilt walker wearing horns, red body paint, and not much more did a nonchalant daddy long leg step over the trubies and proceeded on down the parade route, her bud breasts bouncing as she went. Two of the trubies grinned at me and called out, Jamboree! I gave them back the response, Ambataila! And swung my noisemaker around on its stick so its racket sawed at the air. I shook my head at the silver flask one of them slid out of a back pocket to offer me. She was only being friendly, but they had a way of forgetting that some of the things they drank for pleasure could cause human serious pain. The line of them changed direction, stumbling Kate a corner off in the opposite direction, zigzagging through the crowds of people jumping up to the music. I said to Betty, True bloods, plain drunken sailor mass, what a thing. Betty stopped her darvish whirling long enough to peer at me through the strips and tatters of torn cloth and reply, But they are not masquerading as the dead. Shouldn't they have obeyed the edict? 
It was a suggestion, girl, not an edict. To besides, some of them had white skull faces painted on. Not that you could notice white face paint so easily on that lot. Betty was pogoing now. I picked up the hem of my gown and followed her, chipping down the road to the music. Edict. Jeez, I'm peace. I was getting used to the weird-ass things that Tibet could come up with. It's not like anyone was going to police what people wore. Nobody coordinated or organized the Juve parade. It just happened. Nobody picked an official theme for each year's parade. Word just got around. And half the masqueraders completely ignored the theme and wore whatever pleased them. I even saw someone dressed up as a cell phone. The new, teeny kind. New to border town anyway. We learned about them last month when newbies started flooding into town again after a two-week absence. All the newcomers swore it had been 13 years that border town had disappeared from the world. And now here they were, chattering on about tweeting and my face and complaining that they couldn't text anyone with those ridiculously tiny portable phones they carried everywhere. I said, Neville, we're ready to order over here. I tried making conversation with Gladstone, but I was only getting one-word answers. You mustn't address me as Neville today, announced Neville as he came over. I turned my face to one side so he wouldn't see me roll my eyes. Always some drama with Neville. He slipped a pencil from behind his ear and produced a small, neat notebook from somewhere amongst the frills and flutters of his outfit. Today, my darlings, I am the beneficent Miss Nell. Your order, sweet children? I just put a pot of the house special blend to steep, fresher than your old Uncle Charlie with the wandering hands. And the raisin cake is good today. The cook was in a nice, nice mood this morning. He leaned in closer. Only whatever you do, darlings, don't order the scones. Cookie was never any good at those. He says English people's food all starch and no flavor. I mean to say Cookie's a sweet, sweet man, sweet can done. In a stage whisper, he continued, but he have his little blind spots, you know? Then he burst into a gleeful cackle. He was the self-same cook, but he never ceased to tire of his joke. A gruff voice called out, what is in the house, Blend? It was the handsome mannish girl sitting alone in her booth. I couldn't place her accent. Not Jamaican then. Neville, Miss Nell, beamed at the question. Oh, sweetheart, the house blend have ginger, grated fresh by the nimble fingers of a certain handsome young man, dried nasturtium petals, squash blossoms, and rose petals, all grown, when magic permits, in the summer garden of the best-looking Negro this side of Soho, and nuggets of dried apple as sweet and lingering as that brown man's kisses. The house blend will fix anything trouble in your heart, darling daughter. And for finger food to besides, we have ripe banana dipped in sweet batter and fried, and fried green banana to boot. Cookie does cook them up nice, nice in olive oil, sprinkle them with a little coarse salt and some cayenne, then drench them in so much butter, you're going to be licking your fingers and wiping grease from your mouth with the back of your hand, and belching one rude belch and thanking the stars in the heavens that you find your way to Cafe Cubana at long last. By the girl's frown and her baffled look, Miss Nell had lost her early on in that flight of language. She pointed at Gladstone and said, I want what that one has. Her two eyes made four with a startled Gladstone's. Not a bit of shyness to the butchling's gaze this time. It was Gladstone who blushed and looked down. I ordered our usual, roasted hazelnut and hemp tea for Gladstone with fried ripe bananas, Madagascar muckraker for me with fried green bananas, extra butter, no scones for either of us. Like a seven-foot hummingbird, Neville, 
Miss Nell flitted and flashed from customer to customer, taking orders and giving back banter. From what I could tell, he did so in at least five languages, including High Middle Elvish and La Arden, which was popping up everywhere now that the River Rats had for some reason taken a shine to it. A tinny tinkle of a tune came from somewhere about the girl's person. She pulled a cell phone out of the kangaroo pocket of her sweatshirt, flicked it open. She spoke a greeting into it in a language I didn't know. All around the cafe, people smiled, shook their heads. Another newbie come to check out Border Town now that it was open to the world again. She would find out soon enough, over here, a cell phone might take it into its head to dance a jig, to loudly broadcast the audio from the last time you'd had sex, even to ring. What it would not do was allow you to have a conversation with another person. Not for long, anyway. Gladstone, still looking like somebody had stolen her puppy, muttered, Last year, me and Charlotte marched in the Jamboree Juve Parade together. I was dressed in Pierrot Grenade, and she was my purette. I closed my eyes. And two weeks after that, she left you. Don't tell me that is what all this moping and sulking is about. She looked at her hands. This time of year is just reminding me, you know. Everyone's going to be at the parade, all coupled up and shit. Not me, though. I sighed and rubbed the scar on my chin. Gladstone, you know I love you. And I'm sorry to be so harsh, but Lottie's not your girlfriend anymore. Not for nearly a year now. Good thing, too. I opened my eyes. Gladstone's face had gone ashen and completely still, as though someone had slapped it. Feeling like a shit, I continued, let me guess. You got drunk out of your mind again, and you probably tried to get violent, and she'd finally had enough, and she left you. Same old story, Dudu. Okay, so that was the real reason I'd broken up with Gladstone. Same blasted reason everybody did. She broke up with you, I continued, and she'd been hanging out with Nadine from since. The two of them happy like pigs in mud, she not coming back to you. Gladstone sighed. The pretty ones always leave. Yes, if we want to remain pretty. I managed to pull my fingers back before they touched the jagged place on my chin. The tomboy girl was babbling into her cell phone. Unusual for the conversation to have lasted this long. I couldn't place the language, but she looked upset. Her voice was getting louder. Gladstone muttered, I give them my heart, and they toss it back in my face, and it just makes me crazy, you know? The girl barked a panic question into the cell phone. Agitated, she started arguing before she could have heard much of the answer. Gladstone wailed, Lottie left, you left, they always leave. I sighed, where is Nellie with that blasted tea? Betty had stopped dancing for the moment. From the torque to her pitchy-patchy costume, I could tell that she was turning this way and that, trying to peer through the crowd. Can you see anyone? She asked me. Jokey question, seen as how the street was packed with people. But I didn't laugh at her. Not yet, I answered. She seemed to shrink into her already small self. I felt like a shit for the dance I was leading her on. Over there. Was that a nap of silver hair and a burly body? Yes, but it wasn't Gladstone. I let out the breath I hadn't realized I was holding. I spied out stick on the sidelines, leaning against the telephone pole, wearing his usual grim and faintly disapproving sour face. Wouldn't hurt him to come and join the bacchanal. He was even dressed right for a jazz funeral. Black jeans, black boots, black t-shirt. But for all his grace when beating people up in his self-appointed role as Border Town's help of the helpless, I was sure that dicty negro couldn't shake his groove thang if his life depended on it. His ferret, Lubin, was doing it for him, weaving around his ankles for the joy of the music and occasionally standing on her hind legs to do a little ferret jig. Lubin just loved to dance, we? Oui? But wait, 
Was Lubin wearing something? I squinted, but my blasted myopia wouldn't let me see clearly. Trailing a swirling beatty, I casually chipped my way closer to Lupin and Stick. A troop of man-bats blocked the view for a few seconds until with a swish of their leathery, outstretched wings they moved past. Lubin stood up on her hind legs again and began to hop about. I busted out laughing. What? asked Beatty, mid-pirouette. Stick's ferret. That guy, see? His pet is wearing a Carmen Miranda costume. Lubin wore a tiny layered miniskirt, each layer a different color, and a little purple cotton halter that left her midriff bare. Each front leg sported a yellow armlet ruffle high up. I couldn't make out the details of the colorful hat secured under her chin with an elastic strap, but I'd bet it was a mini cornucopia of tropical fruit. Beatty looked where I was pointing. That man comes from across the river, she said. Who, Stick? I can believe he's crossed the big bloody. From the movement of the motley covering her top half, she must have shaken her head. Not the mad river, the one running through my town. He has a look to him like the people who live on the other bank. Uh-oh. Tickle in my nose and that sensation like my hair was lifting up off my scalp. From since I was a small girl back home, back home home that is not my second home of Toronto, Canada, I used to know when it was going to rain, even before the rainflies came out to fill the sky, to flit and dance in the air until the rain came down and washed the wings from their bodies so they could transform into adults. In border town... I could sense magic weather as well as the regular kind, and right now there was big magic heading our way. Gladstone on a tear could send a storm wash of the stuff on ahead of her like a shockwave. Only Gladstone's juju could give me the kind of migraine that was suddenly a threatening whisper behind my left eye. When I'd seen her last night, she'd muttered, Bitch thinks she's too good for me, huh? I'll show her. She hadn't seemed to be particularly aware of who I was. She was just announcing her peak to the general air. I put my hand on Beatty's back to urge her forward. We gotta go. Very well, but I wanted to watch the small woman dance some more. Small woman? I kept moving us through the crowd. Over there, was that a broad shoulder in a red plaid jacket with the sleeves cut away? Best as I could, I ducked us behind a very tall, thin girl wearing a very tall, thin cardboard box that had been decorated to look like a coffin. The Woman, you just showed me, said Betty, sounding frustrated. The tiny one in the plenty skirts with the guy from over the river. Lubin? I nearly tripped over my own bustle in surprise. But Lubin isn't a woman. She's not a girl. She's a ferret, Tibet. An animal. A woman animal, like you. Weird kid, sure. I hear the horn dance has their own crew planned for today. Let me go see if we can find them. The beneficent Miss Nell returned from the backroom kitchen, apron and cap abandoned so she could show off her ensemble to advantage. She was holding aloft two trays loaded with orders, and she was singing in a booming, tuneful bass the old calypso about French men and their predilections for cunnilingus. I thought I could see the brown crushed baton shapes of fried green bananas on a saucer on one of those trays, and a saucer of golden rounds of batter-dipped fried ripe bananas. I sat to attention, hopeful. Sure enough, Nell began sweeping in our direction, and then it was like slow motion. Like the way things happen when you're in a car that's about to collide with another, and you can see it happening, but it's too late to stop, and you're thinking, oh shit, this is going to hurt, and then everything speeds up, and the butch girl was striding toward Nell, out of her line of sight, but she was arguing on her cell phone, not looking where she was going, and before I could shout out a warning, BAM! 
and then there were spilled bits of bananas and broken crockery everywhere, and Miss Nellie was down on the ground, petticoat askew, and the girl was looking shocked and dismayed at her and was shaking banana bits out of her short dreads, and Gladstone was already out of her seat and on the way over there. Gladstone asked them both, Are you okay? The girl turned those marsh green eyes toward her, and I swear that Gladstone gasped. The girl smiled at her, and there it was, Gladstone get to banca just so, just like the last time and the time before. A big believer in love at first sight, Gladstone was, so of course it happened to her all the time. It was the first step in her personal dance of self-destruction. The girl slid the cell phone back into her pocket. In the quick glimpse I got, it looked more like a shell than a cell, white and crenellated on the outside, pinked into a deep rose center. When I left the world 19 years ago, there were cell phones with superheroes on them and cell phones that lit up in the dark. Looked like there was a fad for organic now. Gladstone and her new crush helped Miss Nell to her feet. The girl apologized the whole time in that accent I couldn't place. She really was astonishingly striking. Small and sturdy and muscly, a one-person puppy pile of energy and enthusiasm. By the time Gladstone and the girl were done cleaning up the mess that Betty's carelessness had made, the two of them were good, good friends, and Gladstone was introducing her to me. Her full name was something unpronounceable that apparently meant a blessing on our house. I made do with Betty, the part of it I could say. And offering to show her the best places to get a last-minute outfit to wear to the Juve Parade, since she was so new in town and Gladstone knew her way around. They hardly noticed me paying both sets of bills. Gladstone, man, I complained when we left the Cafe Cubana. I never got to taste my green banana. Betty gasped. I am so sorry, she said. She touched my arm briefly. This is my fault. We must go back and get you another meal. Both gracious and graceful. Now it's all right. Never mind that, I said, smiling. What I really want to know is how come you were getting reception on your cell phone? My cousin called me. Gladstone's lips twitched from the other side. Whoa, wait, I said. You're from the realm? A human from the realm? She says she's not human, Gladstone replied. Elvish. She and I shared a covert, amused smile. New in town with a bad case of the elf wannabes. Most of them got over it. I had. And was still grateful for Gladstone's patient indulgence in those years I'd swanned around in gauze skirts, festooned with what I'd fancied to be elvish runes. Betty had the grace to look abashed. Not from the realm, from... The syllables landed on my ears and slid away like marbles rolling in oil. Gladstone's face did something peculiar, interested, hungry, and resentful, all at once. Wow, really? I've heard about you guys. Betty simply nodded. What's that? She was pointing above our heads. Gladstone replied, what? Oh, that's Jimmy. I asked, what's that place all you're talking about, that unpronounceable place? Gladstone looked embarrassed for me. A country across the border. The realm, you mean? No, a different country. There isn't only the one, you know. I hadn't known. Jimmy, Betty reminded her. I answered this time. The stone gargoyle. He lives there on top of the Mock Avenue church tower. Gladstone cut in. I could take you to see him. They say that if the bell ever strikes the right time, he'll come to life. I could take you and show you if you tell me more about... I started herding us toward where Gladstone and I had chained our bikes. A different country? Wow. Live and learn. Okay, but if cell phones don't work in Borderland, they're sure not going to work on the other side either. Why was Gladstone going along with Betty's story? Betty said, it's kind of like texting, okay, except with cola nuts. 
though jumbie beads work just fine unless you want to get all self-righteous and ancestral and shit. The common class stylings combined with her odd accent were cute as hell. Cola nuts, jumbie beads, right. Beatty didn't reply, just turned those mossy eyes on me with a sweet smile. For the next four days, that's how she responded any time we bucked up against some mystery about her. That's how it all started. Bordertown was a place of collisions that led people's lives in new directions. For the four days before Jamboree, Gladstone wandered everywhere with Beatty. The two of them were just doodle bay over each other. They were holding hands within minutes of meeting, kissing within hours. Gladstone took her to see Jimmy and to hang out with her skateboarder friends at Tumbledown Park, plus shopping for a juve costume. I bet if I had said Lottie to Gladstone them days, she would have replied, Who? She would have forgotten me, too, if it had not been for Betty. Gladstone told me every little trinket Betty found, every sight she saw it was, We must tell Damiana, and she would drag Gladstone to come and visit me at Juju Daddy's. Stick saw me looking at him and Lubin. He nodded gravely at me. I swear the man knew who I was even under my skull makeup and the big picture hat decorated with small gravestones and teeny crows. Stick gave me the creeps. Betty lifted some of the motley from her face and looked around. When will Gladstone be here? My heart ached for the poor kid. I don't know, Tibet. She frowned the way you frown when you're trying not to cry. But I want to see her before this is all over. I want to dance with her while I still can. Plenty of time, Dudu. The last lap around the market isn't until sunup tomorrow. Come, let me try and find some other Katrinas. Katrinas like you? Yes. She and I had given up trying to dance for now. Too many people. We kept pushing on through the thronging bodies, the laughter, the dancing, through the musk-salt sweat of human bodies and the lavender-salt sweat of truby ones, through the sense memory of me lying with my head cradled on Gladstone's chest, both of us damp from the exertion of fucking, my musk-salt sweat and her complicated lavender musk-salt one. I wondered what Tibet smelt like, salt or sweet, or maybe both. What was she really? A breeze tugged at my hat, harpilated the little hairs on my arms. Jumby weather, coming in on little cat feet, like those light sun showers of sweet rain that can turn in a flash to a full-out storm. For all the pushing and shoving and comes, I nearly jumped right out of my skin when a howl cut through the music and a figure tumbled past us, throwing itself into a triple somersault. Whoever or whatever it was landed on its feet facing us. It was wearing a pallbearer's suit, complete with top hat. A wolf skull peeked out from under the brim of the hat. I drew back. I swore I could see through the empty spaces amongst the bones of the skull to the paraders dancing on the other side of the person. Then he pulled the mask and hat off in one to reveal his own lupine head and furry snout. The mask was solid again. Juju weather, making me see things. Run! I squealed. Juve, sweetheart! Ron, the wolf boy, sketched a deep bow at us, flourishing with his hat and mask. He bruised the air with another howl that might just have been the words, Ambadaila! Tibet launched into a ululation of her own, which only increased my horripilation. She started dancing around him. He grinned, reached to take her hands. She pulled hers back. I winced. Ron was really sensitive to people freaking out at his looks. But then she clapped her hands onto his shoulders. He took her by the waist. Together, man-thing and mystery woman, they capered through the crowd, barreling into revelers who greeted them with cries of Juve and Ambataila.
Jeez, girl, look at how all these colors fighting with each other now. With thumb and forefinger, I sorted through the pile of discarded rags Betty and Gladstone had dumped on the kitchen floor of my squat. You couldn't find anything nicer than this? They are from people who may be dead. That is the theme, right? To celebrate your ancestor spirits? I guess. I will make an egongong then. Spirit of the ancestors. It beats people with sticks to remind them to be good. My granny used to threaten to do that to me. She never did, though. The sticks are also to keep people away. To touch the agongong is to die. Only Gladstone says I mustn't beat anyone with sticks during the parade. I made a face. Shit, no. That used to be the tradition centuries ago back home. Ambatai means let's rumble. I do not understand. Never mind, I said. Nowadays the Ambatai is only pappy show. No real fighting supposed to happen. Sometimes she worked too hard at this being an elf thing. So did Gladstone, but at least she had a reason. She was half-elf after all. Half-elf at all border town. Betty was probably neither. You realize most of these clothes do mash up to mend? Betty grinned at me. I'm going to mash them up even more. She took a crumpled and stained linen dress shirt from me and began tearing it into long strips. Her hands were strong. Today, I walked through your marketplace, and I visited a place across the Mad River, she said happily. Lots of people brown, like me and Gladstone, and I ate jerk chicken. You were in Little Toot then, the Jamaican section. Yes, tonight, Gladstone is taking me dancing. Like you trying to experience all of border town at the same time. I have to go soon. After only a few days, school must be out for the summer by now. Betty hesitated. Then she said... I would like to stay longer, but someone is coming to take me away. Damn. I'd been hoping a casual mention of school would get her to make a slip one way or the other about this elf business. I just have to keep trying to get the real story from her. I held one of the rags up against her. This purple is good on you. Border town don't let everybody in. This person who wants to take you away may be the wrong kind of person. For a second, hope lit her face, but the light went out. This one... Borders cannot stop him. Who is he? My brother. Do you really think he might not be able to come here? Gladstone whisked into the room, her arms full of more gaudy rags. Who might not be able to come here? Betty turned to her. My fiancé, she said. I chuckled. Wherever she was from, English was certainly not her first language. Tibet, you just told me he was your brother. He can be a fiancé, too. She went still, then gave a dismissive laugh. Brother, betrothed, I always get them confused. Gladstone dubbed her armful on top of the one I was already sorting. So which one is he? I could tell she was trying not to let her suspicion show. My brother, my blood, yes? He's coming soon to be with me. Before I could ask her about the difference between take me home and be with me, she tackled Gladstone, knocked her down into the mound of rags on the floor. Giggling, they began to wrestle. Gladstone had Betty pinned in under a minute, but Betty laughed her growly teddy bear laugh and somehow managed to twist her body and use her legs in a scissors holder on Gladstone's waist. The wrestling turned into groping and the giggling was silenced by kisses. I watched them, only for a little while. When buttons started being unbuttoned by eager fingers, I left the squat and went for a walk. It was high time I had a girlfriend again. Betty and Ron were still dancing their jig. They'd been joined by Sparks, Ron's girlfriend. Briefly, I wondered whether Ron had dog breath. I used to give Glower those soft cakes of raw yeast for his, but I wasn't really paying them too much mind, we? I was busy keeping a watch out for Gladstone. 
to besides the turreted shape of Betty's pitchy-patchy costume had finally jogged my memory. The song that the chorus of the road march was sampling was In a Fine Castle, Do You Hear My Sissio? In a Fine Castle, Do You Hear My Sissio? So long I hadn't played that game. Not since small girl days back home. We'd form two circles of children. The circles would haggle with each other in song. Ours is the prettiest. Do you hear my Cicio? Ours is the prettiest. Do you hear my Cicio? The response, a simple expression of longing that even when I was a child had struck me as endearing in its brave vulnerability. We want one of them. Do you hear my Cicio? We want one of them. Do you hear my Cicio? But suppose it hadn't been a plea, but a threat. Give me one of your pretty ones, you hear me, or else. Or else what? And was the first team's reply an act of generosity or a capitulation? Which one do you want? Do you hear my Cicio? Which one do you want? No, no, not Betty. They didn't want her Betty, did they? All that talk about having to leave soon, not having much time. Betty was jumpy as a cricket in a chicken coop today. And where the hell had she gotten to? I'd lost her in the crowd. My left eye twitched, oh God. Juju heading our way, that twitch in my eye. In the bad years, that's how I'd learned to tell when Gladstone's nature was running high. How to tell when to stay away from her. Gladstone slouched casually against her bicycle and mine. We'd lean them against the bus stop where we arranged to meet Betty. Mine was chained the usual way. Gladstone's had only a piece of old rope looped around the fork, trailing untied to the ground. The way she put it was, if the bike believed it was tied up, nobody would be able to steal it. Seemed to work, too. In any case, no one had ever stolen her bespelled bike. I'd lost five bikes to thieves since I came to Bordertown. Gladdy and I were going to take Beatty mudlarking along the banks of the Big Bloody. Sometimes you found cool trash to keep or trade. Gladstone looked up and down Christobel Street. You see her yet? I sighed. No, girl. But I'm sure she's going to come. I just want her to be safe, is all. I nodded. If you didn't have your own wheels in border town, there was always what passed for a transit system. You found some simulacrum of a bus stop. This one was a dead tree still standing at the curb of Christobel Street. The length of its blackened trunk painted shakily in green with the words, The bus stops here. And you waited. There was no schedule, no official transit system. Anyone with any kind of vehicle could take it into their head to set up a route and charge whatever they pleased. You never knew what would show up. A rickshaw pulled by a wild-eyed youth with spiky red hair and the shakes from Mad River withdrawal. A donkey cart, complete with donkey. There was even a bus pulled by a unicorn that only let virgin passengers on. I'm actually having a hard time keeping up with her, said Gladstone. Betty, I mean. Like I used to with you. She keeps wanting me to take her to all this stuff I've never heard of. Like what? She wants to see a movie about a guy wearing an iron suit. The second one, she says, because she's already seen the first and the third. She wants to try something called an Xbox. She wants a Hello Kitty vibrator. Gladstone blushed. Me, I thought my belly was going to bust from laughing. You mean Sir Gladhands flashing fingers not doing it for her? Like you slowing down and shoot, gal. Oh, don't be like that. You know, it's only joke I'm making. Then it dawned on me. Wait, one second. Those things she wants, they're all from the world. Things from the time when the way to Borderland was closed. Gladstone was still sulking. So? Why would a newbie come here for things she can get out in the world? 
a bitter chuckle. You still don't believe she's from across the border? Do you? She shrunk in on herself a little. I've heard about, you know, that place she says she's from? It's a real place. It may only be stories. My da used to tell me them. She looked at me, longing, making her face vulnerable. A country on the other side where people have both my skin and my magic. Huh. Maybe Beatty was telling the truth then. I wasn't convinced, though. A team of boys riding three tandem bikes pulled up to the stop, offloaded two guys with backpacks, and a woman carrying a live chicken by its bound legs. No Beatty. The guys paid for their ride with smokes. The woman paid with the chicken. They wandered off in separate directions, and the bikes moved on. So you going to go there? I asked. To unnameable? I tried to keep my voice light to prepare my heart for yet another loss. She stared at her shoes. She won't tell me anything about it. Nothing that counts anyway, just like all those other bloods who think they're better than us halfies. Girl, get real. I see how she looks at you. If she not telling you anything, maybe she can't. Is you self telling me that people from beyond the border are forbidden to talk certain things? Gladstone scowled. Yeah. Well then. She wasn't going to leave me. Relief. Triumph. Guilt. Dammy, all that stuff she wants that I've never heard of, I can't give it to her. Shame burned deep in those silver eyes, banking to anger. Outcast in the world, outcast over the border. Gladstone would probably live out her life in Bordertown, and she knew it. And even here, she had to steady battle closed doors and sniggers behind her back. Beatty can go wherever she wants, in the world and out of it. Comes here, flaunting it, slumming with the halfie. I sneezed. Don't go sour on this girl the way you do, okay? I like her. Gladstone huffed and stared at the ground. Betty, I called. I pushed between a scary clown wearing a t-shirt that read, Why So Serious? and a near-naked Truby. The Truby was ancient as the hills and thrice as wrinkled. He had a boa constrictor draped over his arms. Age had blanched the two braids hanging down his back from silver to pure white. They were each nearly as thick around as the snake, and their tips tickled his dusty ankles. His eyes were an opaque fish belly pale, but they followed me all the same. The snake charmer was suddenly blocking my road. Blasted trubies could move quicker than thought. He leaned in toward me and croaked, What will you give her? Do you hear, my sissio? I sneezed. The man looked startled as though someone had just shaken him out of a dream. He smiled at me. Excuse me, cousin, he said, his vowels liquid with the accent of the realm. I did not mean to bar your way. He stepped aside. Don't fret, I replied. My skin was still crawling with the surprise of the first thing he said to me. Did I misspeak you, cousin? he asked. It seems to me that I said something, though I don't remember what. No, nothing much anyway. It was nothing. I could lie with words, but never with my face. He studied the polite fib he saw written there, and probably my fair to besides. He gave me a rueful smile. There is a wild magic in the bloods of both our races, my friend. We must give it sport from time to time, yes? And sometimes the bacchanalia calls our spirits forth in ways we do not ken. I wasn't sure what he was talking about. I needed to find Betty. I gave him the Juve greeting, though my voice cracked midway. To battle, then, he replied. The response didn't sound so light-hearted in translation. I shuddered. As I moved on, he was crooning at his snake, which had raised its head to his, and was flickering its tongue over his lips, scenting his breath. Betty! Where you there, Betty? Into my left ear, the juju breeze whispered something that sounded like, We will beat her with green twigs. Do you hear my Cecilio? 
I yelled, that don't suit her. The general commotion swallowed up the sound of my voice. I muttered, do you hear that, my fucking sissio? I pressed on, calling out Betty's name, and I found myself muttering under my breath, you didn't come to border town for this, we? Plain mother hen to baby dags and sullen butchers with substance abuse issues. But as lie I was telling. In truth, I'd never planned to come to border town at all, for any reason. People don't believe me, so I don't talk it much, but I swear I didn't leave Toronto. It left me. It had been a bad year is all. My girlfriend at the time had just left me, something about me being smothering. I'd had to put my 19-year-old dog down once his heart trouble was too far gone. Then Grandma died back home, and I couldn't afford to fly down for the funeral. And the last straw? I'd been temporarily laid off yet again from a job at the forever precariously funded crisis center. The change happened slowly in the weeks that followed. At some point it crossed my mind that the flashily overlit Honest Ed's discount emporium seemed to have seamlessly metamorphosed into a store called Snapping Wizard's Surplus and Salvage. More bang for the buck, more spell for the silver. Sure, the words on the sign had changed, but the place still sparkled with enough lights festooning its outside to illuminate half the city and was still piled to the ceiling with everything from army parachutes to sex toys. And sure, the Swiss chalet chicken place across the street had been replaced by a club named Danceland, but that was construction in downtown Toronto for you. They were always bulldozing the old to replace it with something else. The little import shop where I bought my favorite fair trade dark chocolate ran out of it, and then chocolate was scarce everywhere. I didn't drink coffee, so it's not like I missed that. And as to the presence in the city of fine-boned people with fancy hair, high style, and higher attitude, Toronto had always had its share of those. By the time I had to accept that I was no longer in Toronto and those weren't just tall, skinny white people with dye jobs and contact lenses, it didn't seem so remarkable. People changed and grew apart. As you aged, your body altered and became a stranger to you and one day you woke up and realized you were in a different country. It was just life. I hadn't needed to travel to the border. It had come to me. I settled in, found a new job, started dating Gladstone. Life went on, if a little more oddly than before. I got used to it. To dating a truly magical mulattress, to reading by candlelight when the power outed, to riding a bicycle everywhere in any weather. I even rigged up a Trini-style peanut cart, a three-foot cube tinning box attached to the front of a bicycle with a generator powered by the action of cycling, or by a spell box when electricity wouldn't manifest. Peanuts roasted inside it. The outlet chimney was a whistle so the escaping steam would sing through the whistle as I rode. That and the smell of roasting peanuts would make people run come. Daddy Juju loved it. He painted the store name and address on the side of the tin box, and I rode the streets of Border Town and served out fresh roasted peanuts and little rolled cones of newspaper. I made a good life here. Working at Juju Daddy's was my job, true. But it wasn't what I did. There was a reason I'd worked at the shelter in Toronto. A reason my ex had said I was smothering. I watched out for newbie baby dags and shy hunter fairies, human or elf, as tough as nails and as brittle as glass. I kept an eye on bruised halflings who didn't realize they were already whole in and of themselves. I smoothed ruffled feathers and mediated lovers' quarrels and fed the ones who couldn't feed themselves and tried to keep the people I loved from hurting each other too much. Betty! I shouted. The street took a sharp turn, and then when I rounded it, for an instant I had the crazy thought that Betty had somehow multiplied. I was in the middle of a crew of Beatties, a proliferation of Beatties. Cone-shaped masses of rags and tatters danced all around me, and jesters and motley, and hobo clowns in torn jackets and pants and crumpled top hats, a bitch.
Pitchy Patchy Crew. No matter her fancy name for her costume, it was a plain old Pitchy Patchy Mass. I laughed, relief making my voice a little too wild and hyena-like. The dancers didn't have musicians, but were making their own music by singing, We will give her a wedding ring, do you hear my sissy-o? We will give her a wedding ring, do you hear my sissy-o? With a clomping of hooves, the camel bus drew to a halt at the crumbling curb. Gladstone's face brightened. Beatty's here! Through the windows of the bus, we saw Beatty stand and take the hand of a pretty truby girl, tall and slim, with big cat eyes and a complicated fall of silvery hair. Laughing, they headed for the bus's exit. I didn't have to look at Gladstone to know the change that had come over her face. The shocked shift from eager anticipation to self-protective sullenness. Glad hand girl, don't jump to conclusions, okay? You see? Like always calls to like. Why stay with the half-blood when you can have another pure breed? They may just be friends. Friends, right. I gotta go. And that was the last Betty and I had seen of Gladstone. At least that's what I was telling Betty. I hadn't mentioned running into Gladstone last night. The other girl had been just a friend in truth. Someone Betty had met on that same bus that had picked them both up as they were wandering around the outskirts of Border Town, trying to figure out the way in. Betty had only wanted her new friend Lizzie to meet her new love, Gladstone. And the real kicker? Betty told me that Lizzie wasn't even a truby, just one of the rare humans who kind of looked like one. Someone spun me around. I recognized the particular configuration of strips of cloth. Betty! She grabbed me around the waist, spun me so my back was against her front. We went into a classic dutty wine like the people all around us, hips gyrating together. She caught on fast, this one. She'd been watching how back home people danced to soca music. It was sexual, yes, but it didn't have to mean sex. It was a pappy show of sex, a masquerade. Sex is powerful and beautiful and dangerous, is bigger than peeny humans. To wind up dutty with somebody else is like plain mass and corpse makeup. It's like saying, these things have power over us, but right now we can laugh after them. First time Gladstone saw me dance like this with someone else, we'd had one big macarow. She'd been convinced I was about to lie down right there so on the floor of the club and start getting nasty with the fella I'd been whining with. With some fella who wasn't her, never mind that he was a stranger I'd only clapped eyes on five minutes before, and a fella to boot. That was the first time she'd given me blows. And like a fool, I'd gone back for more. Hadn't protected myself. Hadn't insisted she find a way to stop trying to own me with her fists. All those years in my previous life, I'd worked to help battered wives, husbands, parents, children. But of course, when I was the one getting beat up by somebody who loved me, I decided I didn't need help. I was the expert, right? I could handle this all by myself. I could manage Gladstone. We be her lover and her therapist. Gladstone wasn't the only one who needed to learn that control is something you might try to exercise over a runaway train, not over a lover. The revelers started bellowing out the song about not giving a damn because they'd done that already. So long I hadn't heard that guy so. From the big standard the two Frankenstein flag bearers were dancing with, the crew was called the Jumbi Jamboree. Dead mass all around us, vampires, ghosts, even duen mass, small children dressed as the spirits of the unbaptized dead, wearing Panama hats that hid their faces and shoes that made it look as though their feet were turned backward. If you hear the sound of children laughing in the forest, don't follow their footprints, because they might be duens luring you deeper into the forest when you think the footprints are leading you out. I leaned back into Betty's embrace. I turned my head toward her. Why you disappeared like that? 
I can hide with these people, she said, her voice rough, like she'd been crying. I turned and took her in my arms. Don't worry, child, I won't let Gladstone find you. She pulled back, pushed some of the motley away from her face. Gladstone? You're keeping Gladstone from me? Oh, shit. She want to hurt you, I blurted. Betty reared back, startled. Why? She's real mad at you for hanging with that girl from the bus. She thinks the two of you been cheating on her. She looked confused. Che cheating? Light dawned. You mean making sex with each other, but we haven't. Don't matter. When Gladstone get like this, all she want to do is lash out. You have to stay away from her till she calm down. Believe me, girl, I know. Same thing she did to me. I turned my face, showed her my scarred jaw. The fear, the distress on Betty's face tore my heart out. She doesn't realize, she said. Through the prang-a-lang of the music, I thought the next words she said were, she should be the one scared of me. What? She smiled sadly, touched my arm. Don't worry, things change. Then she looked back behind us. She crowded close to me. What is that? She cried. Cold, fierce sweat was crawling down my spine before I even turned to look. Whatever it was, I could feel it coming, feel it in my sinuses, in the savage change that had come upon colors. Something parted the crowd like a wave, leaving me and Beatty exposed in the middle of the road. The air had gone dark around us, damp and cold. I heard screams from the crowd. But the spectacle approaching us did so in silence. No sound from the pounding of the horse's hooves, the baying of the dogs that weren't dogs, the harsh, rasping breath of the quarry that they were chasing down the very middle of the Juve parade in what had been broad daylight a second ago. I hustled Beatty over to the sidelines. We watched the hunt approach. They were moving in slow-mo. Beatty asked, what are those? Beside her, someone in a phantom of the opera costume replied, the wild hunt. Here, not the band, the real thing. His voice shook. We're all in some deep shit now. Why? asked Beatty. Anyone who sees them dies. A deep voice cut in. We are. We're all going to die. Someday. I turned. It was Stick. Lubin was riding on his shoulder, all a bristle as she stared at the spectacle approaching us. The quarry didn't seem to be really there. I mean, we could see her, but her feet didn't exactly touch the ground as she ran. They either landed a little bit above it or a little bit beneath the surface. For all she was of the blood, exhaustion had blanched her face even whiter. Her hair hung in sodden ropes of merely grey that swung in dead weight whenever she looked over her shoulder to see how close the hounds were. Sweat had glued her once gorgeous flowing dress to her body, and its streaked color was more mildew now than the pale green it probably used to be. Linden, muttered Stick. So that was her punishment. I hoped I would never again see anything like the dogs that were chasing that woman. Black, small, about the size of terriers, but their heads and snouts were rat-like, only with the dangling, eager tongues of dogs hanging out from between their fangs. Too many legs. They ran more like centipedes than dogs. They swarmed over the road, red eyes intent on their prey. As she drew level with us, Linden stumbled. People in the crowd cried out. She put one hand down to break her fall. It didn't quite touch the ground, but some invisible solid surface just a hair's breadth above the disintegrating asphalt of Ho Street. There were rings of silver and sapphire on three of her outspread fingers. One of the hounds leapt, caught the hem of her dress, and she was up again. She bounded away, leaving the hound with a scrap of sodden silk in its mouth. Behind the hounds came the hunters themselves. Leading them was a truby on a motorcycle, her beautiful face grim. The rest were on horses, 
on goats. I think I saw one riding a taper. Silently, the whole mess of them bounded by. As the last few passed, the day grew bright again and the wetness left the air. For a few seconds, we were all quiet. Some people were crying. Some still just standing with their mouths hanging open, catching air. Stick muttered, Love wealth and glory more than life itself and starve in splendor. Then someone in the crowd started clapping, followed by others. People began shouting, Juve and Ambataila! Pretty soon there were noisemakers going and whistles. The Phantom of the Opera shouted, Glamour! It was just a crew with a glamour! The band began playing again. The Phantom put his arm around the waist of a chunky purple-haired woman in a skeleton cat suit and they careened into the steps of a jig. Somewhere in the comes, Betty had lost her headpiece. That was... pretend? she asked. Stick narrowed his eyes. Could be. Me, I didn't business with him and his constant suspicion. My headache was gone and my nose had stopped tingling. Real or make-believe, the wild hunt had been the source of the juju weather, not Gladstone after all. Jubilant, I fumbled for Betty's hand amongst her rags and patches and we started dancing to the music again. We will frighten her half to death. Do you hear my sissy-o? We will frighten her half to death. Do you hear my sissy-o? Bellowing out the verse, I swung the hoop of my skirt in a circle. It crashed against Gladstone's leg. My two eyes made four with hers. Hers were rimmed with red, her face blotchy. She narrowed her eyes. Heart thumping, I pushed Beatty behind me, but I was too late. Beatty squealed, Gladstone! She ducked around me and flung herself into Gladstone's arms. Blasted child was going to get herself a black eye this juvie afternoon. Gladstone, wait! I yelled. I leapt toward the two of them to try to intervene. Gladstone shoved me away. I landed hard on the ground, heard the balsa wood frame of my skirt crack. Leave us alone, she said. She enveloped Beatty tenderly in her arms. Beatty twined her legs around Gladstone's middle. The two of them gripped each other's shirt backs, held each other like they would never let go. They swayed like that for long seconds to their own music, ignoring the driving beat all around them. My heart cracked open, just like my fragile costume. I stood up. Gladstone hefted Beatty back to her feet. Beatty started toward me. See, dummy, she cried out. It's all right. Gladstone reached me first, grabbed the front of my blouse, yanked me to her. It's been you the whole time, hasn't it? What? I squeaked. We were being buffeted about by revelers. No one did notice the drama going down in their midst. Beatty said, Gladstone, what are you doing? Come and dance with me. But Gladstone only had eyes for me. Dousabelle just got all withdrawn, she said. I started fighting more and more with her, trying to get some reaction from her, I guess. Hated myself, couldn't stop, but who'd been whispering warnings in her ear every day, scaring her half to death? I drew myself up tall. You are scary, damn it. I tried to yank my blouse out of her hand. She held on. I got murdered drunk the night Lottie left me, she continued, after I came home and found she'd moved out. Couldn't find out for days what had happened. Where did she go, Damiana? I squeaked, you were going to blow any minute. I could feel it. Daddy Juju had let me put Lottie and her stuff up for a few days in a room above his shop until she'd found her own place. When the Juju weather headaches of Gladstone's ire had faded, I'd told Lottie it was safe to move. And now you're trying to frighten Betty away. She doesn't frighten me, Betty answered. You don't frighten me. What's coming frightens me, but it has to come. She burst into tears. And then you and Damiana both will turn your faces from me. We turned to her, startled. Oh, Betty, said Gladstone, bending and folding her into a hug. We would never turn away from you. We. Did I deserve that we? 
Had I been minimizing the damage Gladstone could do when she was out of control or had I been causing it? It happened so quickly. A voice shouted something in a language I didn't understand. An arm pushed me out of the way and grabbed Betty's shoulder. A hand peeled Betty away from Gladstone as easily as peeling the skin from a ripe banana. Betty turned, saw who it was and angrily spat out more words I didn't understand. A young black man slipped in front of Betty between her and Gladstone. He tried to shove Gladstone away, but Gladstone held her ground. Fuck, I will, she said. Get away from my girlfriend. Go away, Betty cried out, backing away. But I couldn't tell whether she was talking to the youth or to Gladstone. The young man was a sturdy tumpa of a thing, short and muscled and pretty. He wore his jeans and t-shirt as though they were a costume. His eyes were sad, longing. They were Betty's eyes. He reached for Betty again, same time as Gladstone lurched at him. Magic smell filled up my nostrils. No, Betty shouted. Quicker than thought, she slapped Gladstone's hand away from her brother's. He must be the brother come to take her home, right? That blow had some serious power behind it. Gladstone grimaced in pain, covered her wrist with her other hand, pulled her hands in close to her chest. But I love you, she said to Betty. Betty slung her arm through the crook that Gladstone's made. I know, she replied sadly, pulling Gladstone away from her brother. He followed them. Betty stopped, said something to him that sounded like a plea. He snapped, angry-sounding words at her, reached for her hand. She pulled it away. She looked scared. Gladstone tried to reach around her. Betty grabbed Gladstone's sleeve. No, she shouted. Little as she was, she was strong. She was holding Gladstone off with one arm and the weight of her body, backing them both away from her brother and arguing with him at the same time. I started forward. Stick lifted a warding hand in front of me. Stay out of this, he muttered. He called out something in the language that Betty and her brother were speaking. The two of them turned, looking startled. And then I saw something I never thought I would. Stick bowed the knee to them both. Gladstone said, what the hell? Stick raised his head and asked Betty and her brother a question. Betty replied, pointed at her brother and Gladstone. Her brother cut her off with sharp words. She responded to him with sad, pleading ones. He begged, scolded. Stick stood. He shouted angrily at them both. He gestured at the crowd. I sneezed and slapped my hands to either side of my head as an eyeball-melting migraine hit me. Like a friction charge, some deep juju was building up between Betty and her brother. Stick's eyes went wide with alarm. He snapped an order, pointed a finger northward in the direction of the border. Go, he was saying to Betty and her brother. Go back now. Betty protested. Stick turned in a panic circle. Stick never panicked. There were people thronging all around. Run, he yelled to the crowd. Get the fuck out of here. One or two people started backing away, looking confused, but most didn't even notice him. Then the old snake charmer elf was by Stick's side. Lubin sniffed curiously in the direction of his snake. The snake benignly tasted her air. The truby said something to Stick, turned and began urging people to move away from Betty and her brother. Stick yelled at Gladstone, let her go, now! Gladstone shook her head, swung a protective arm around Betty's shoulder. Betty shrugged it off. I saw the hurt on Gladstone's face, smelled the juju tide come rolling down. Blinding headache or no, I kicked off my shoes and ran toward my friend. Gladstone, no! Betty turned sorrowing eyes on Gladstone, blew her a kiss. It's time, she said. Betty's brother reached his hands out. Betty stepped forward and clasped them both with hers. Gladstone reached their sides, grabbed his forearm in one hand, Betty's in the other. Betty shouted, her voice so large and gonging that it exceeded sound. All the juve action went still with the shock of it. Betty and her brother exploded into shards of prisoned light. 
I was still running, still screaming Gladstone's name, though all around me was only painful brightness and I couldn't feel my body, couldn't hear, couldn't see. The light coalesced again, not as a thick-bodied black boy and his sister, but as one faceless something, a something tall as a tree, a something cone-shaped with many-colored tendrils that flared out from it as it spun, a something that made a sound like monsoon winds through the branches of a dead tree like the whistle through the air of withies just before they struck bare flesh. But loud, so loud. People fell to their knees, those that weren't running. Even Stick stepped back. Not me, for I couldn't see Gladstone anywhere. I ran right up to the thing. Betty! I screamed. It kept spinning, whistling, clacking. The old elf ran to stand between it and the crowd. He held up warding hands. The thing began to move away, but one of its flying tendrils whipped across the snake charmer's face. He convulsed and fell, his snake with him. He was frozen in rigor by the time he hit the ground. Oh God, death had come to Juve for true. I planted myself in the path of the thing. It came on toward me. Tibet, stop it! It hesitated. Where is Gladstone? I screamed at it. What you did to her? The thing dithered from side to side in front of me. I howled, bring them back! Gladstone, the snake charmer, they couldn't just be gone. The tip of the thing leaned its deadly self toward me. I didn't give a damn. I done dead already, just like Stick said. But an hour later, who cared? I'd meddled in my friend's life, and now two sweet beings were gone. The Beatty thing's body smelled like dry rot, like carrion. It smelled like Granny's perfume, like my old dog Glower's breath, like grief and regret and resignation and goodbye. And finally, it smelled like peace. It pulled back. It moved away, and there where it had been lay Gladstone, only Gladstone. Her clothes were torn. There was blood coming from her nose and half her hair had been singed off. I dropped to my knees, felt her neck for a pulse. She was still alive. Gladstone, I said. No answer. Let me see to her sweetness. It was screaming Lord Neville, dressed in the tiered plantation gown and Madras cotton head wrap of a laja bless, the devil woman. I know a few little things, he said. He folded his long length down to sit beside us. Below the hem of his gown peeked one red sequined pump and one hoof. He saw me staring at it and smoothed the gown over his feet. The pitchy-patchy thing spun away in the direction of the never-never. People tried to reach the old snake charmer. His snake had coiled itself protectively around his body and wouldn't let anyone near. Please, God, I never again hear a snake scream in grief. And I won't, for it wasn't a snake. It drew itself up to man height and howled that terrible howl once more and became a searing red flame of wings with a dragon mask of loss. In seconds, it and the dead elf were only ash dissipating on the breeze. For the next few minutes, as my headache faded, I dithered around Miss Nell. She checked Gladstone for injuries. Stick brought water. People offered cloaks to keep Gladstone warm and tore costumes into bandages for her. When she opened her eyes, it was like somebody had turned the sun back on. I'm sorry, I said. I thought you were going to hurt her. She smiled weakly. Truth? I might have. Gently, she touched my chin. Thank you for keeping me from being an ass, even when I'm too stubborn to ask for help. What was she? A rainfly, I think. Gladstone had never seen rainflies, but I'd described their life cycle to her. How joyfully they danced in the air before a rainstorm. How when the pounding rain came, it drove them to the ground and pulled off their wings. How they wriggled and wriggled and then crawled away, metamorphosed into their adult forms. Betty had been doing her last dance as a child. 
She and her brother had needed each other in order to move on to the next stage of their development. No wonder she confused the word for brother with the word meaning two will become one. So she was really from beyond the border? I asked Gladstone. Some kind of Egongong for true? Some kind of what? Gladstone was staring longingly in the direction of the forest. Lord Neville said whatever she was Dudu, she knew she couldn't hide it forever. Brave, proud child. You two did right to care for her. He slid his platform shoe off one foot and massaged his toes. He kept the other foot concealed beneath his gown. And welcome back. One of the things Anna and I really enjoyed about this one, besides Miss Hopkinson's incredible storytelling voice, was how a lot of times we see people running away to Border Town, but in this story, Border Town ran away with someone instead. I'd just finished listening to Michael Shabin's The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which I'd read about 10 years ago, and it's got me thinking a lot about the necessity of escapism and how sometimes you might escape without even realizing it. Not me, though, because as you were listening to this, I'm driving my family across the country from L.A. to Crested Butte, Colorado for a vacation. A week on the 4th of July. Absolutely no escape. Man, why doesn't Border Town run away with me, too? Feedback this week is for Tim Pratt's Fable from a Cage, a wicked little tale told by a wicked little man locked in a cage, so naturally, I was the one reading it. Devoted135 said, Like others, I figured out about halfway through that the thief and the narrator were the same person, but instead of reducing the suspense, it actually made me more curious to see how he ended up in the cage. I also really like the pacing of the major reveals. One moment that really sticks out in my mind is when the Fay woman pauses to wonder what those sumptuous furs in the pit had really been. Ooh. An electric paladin said, I really enjoyed the moral degeneration in this piece. The character gradually sinking into depravity and madness was really neat. I appreciate that ultimately it was his victimization that led to him becoming a victimizer. It was a cycle of violence and suffering that reminds me of real-life abusers and of White Wolf's changeling, The Lost. Hey, thanks for those comments. We'd love to hear from you too, so swing on by forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought of this one. And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Your money allows us to be a weekly parade of the best fantasy fiction so we can pay our authors. Thanks. And if you can't afford to donate, maybe tweet, Facebook, write a review on iTunes or your blog, or just tell a friend about us. Thank you so much. Well, that's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Podcastles made up of associate editor Ann Leckie, sound producer Peter Wood, and your editors Anna Schwend and myself. On behalf of all of us, I'd like to thank you for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next time with a very classic tale. We'll see you, and hopefully your brother, or lover, or both, in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. 
You can discuss this episode of PodCastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Albert Hubbard said, A friend is someone who knows all about you and still loves you.